Hello, and thanks for tuning in to MK Rocks with Rob Taylor. If it's your first time listening to the show, thank you, thank you, thank you. Please tell everybody you've ever met, known, or had five minutes of messy love with, even your Facebook friends. If you're a returning listener, love you even more. I do two shows every week. This one, MK Rocks with Rob Taylor, where I'll be having a chat with anyone who'll talk to me and who might be of interest to you, The Great Unwashed. My other show, New Releases with Rob Taylor, plays, guess what, new releases from the past or the next seven days. All sorts of stuff, not just rock, an unqualified and immaterial review from yours truly. So, guess what I'm pleading is, please come back every week. Anyways, this show features a chat with MK rock legend and all-round mighty fan chap, Dale Bromham. It's quite a long chat, but he's dead interesting, so please hang around. Before I do that, this weekend should have been my annual pilgrimage to the Download Festival. Headlining on the Friday night should have been Kiss. I don't think there'll ever be a statue in Brighton of this band. Saturday night should have been Iron Maiden. I make a habit of missing this band, really. I've missed them four or five times, really. This song was written by, guess who? Del Bromham, tonight's guest.
joined now by my guest, Del Bromham. Del is rock royalty in Milton Keynes. We're mostly interested in what you're doing now, but you've got an almost royal history. Firstly, what made you want to pick up a guitar? Uh, I think it was because when I was a small child, right from the moment I was born, I think there was always music in my house. So I guess it was almost uh, being force fed to me. I had three older brothers. The next brother to me, he had a band. I think I was probably a mistake because there's quite a big age gap between myself and my other brothers. So um, my brother was a teenager getting into the music of the 50s. And interestingly enough, um, when he got to early 60s, he had a band uh, and it was more electric then than skiffle. And he had this guitarist who really wanted to be Hank Marvin. He was a bit lazy. So sometimes he used to leave his guitar at my mum and dad's house. Naughty little boy. I used to go and get it out and pick it up and, and pretend I could play it. But they used to rehearse or practice, as they used to call it then, in my mum and dad's front room in East Acton in London, in West London. You couldn't do it in the modern houses now, but in those houses, you know, you could a bomb could go off in the dining room and you wouldn't hear it in the lounge, you know, a real brick. So I used to practice in there and I used to sit and sit on the sideboard as a little kid and watch them. When I got to the age of about 11 or 12, I really thought I want to do this. And I kept having tunes in my head. And I know this sounds really, really sort of poncy, but I don't actually remember learning to play a guitar I kind of picked it up and started playing it and I think it was because I'd spent every Tuesday I think it was I used to come and play every week watching the guitarist play I knew where to put my fingers and I suppose fate had a funny way as well because my brother at that time he'd moved house and got a flat in Acton and I don't know if it was as I say fate or whether somebody knew that he was in a band but he came out of his flat one morning and someone had dumped an acoustic guitar in his dustbin so he picked it up and he came back round so I can remember he, he turned up one one afternoon and said ERD is something for you and it was the, it was the guitar that was dumped in his dustbin and I still have that guitar to this day tell me about the early days you know, when you started off in bands and whatever and the, the early days of Stray because Stray had been around for a long time well the early days of Stray yeah I mean it was I suppose by the time I got to about 12, 13 I was writing tunes of my own and into the music of the time I was still am a mad Beatles fan and I, you know I thought I want to form a band that's going to be as big as the Beatles you know about 1966 came along and we were well myself and a couple of other lads in were in the art room I remember it in our school Christopher N school in West London I just said shall we form a band I didn't want to sing but there was an, another lad in school I didn't know if he could sing or not but he looked cool he was a bit of a mod and I said you can be the singer so I didn't want to do it my other mate he fancied himself as Hank Marvin but my charming chap persuaded him to buy a bass so he was the bass guitarist uh, and then we had um, another guy in the school Steve who was a drummer and uh, he played with us and we started playing at 15 years old places like little working men's clubs and stuff that drummer left soon after because his mum was going out with a trumpeter or something in a trad jazz band and they were going to go on Opportunity Knox so um, he left what was initially called Stray to join a trad jazz band Steve who was the singer in our band he had a, a Saturday job in a butcher shop he said oh the kid who works with me he's a good drummer so I went to see him and it was the closest thing I'd ever seen to Keith Moon so he got the job well we carried on rehearsing in my mum and dad's front room on that first day, they said for the first time in about 15 years, they could hear the drummer. So, so it was 1966. We was about 14, 15 years old. And I don't know how we did it, but within a month or two of us re first rehearsing, and we did all the mainly all the pop tunes of the time. Uh, and we were playing in the working men's clubs. Uh, we couldn't drive. So a friend of ours who was 21 had a driving license. Richie, the drummer, his dad had a building firm. So we used to borrow the van and we used to go around the gigs. And it was funny because we used to play in pubs, but we weren't old enough to drink. <laughs> a little later on, about 1968, I think it was, We'd done so many shows for a, a young band. We got signed up by two young guys in West London. And from there, they got us the record deal. And we got started to playing from like the working men's clubs and pubs into serious venues. What were becoming at that time rock venues? Because around 68, 69, it was, it was all changing. And we were going in playing. And, and it was funny because at that time, when, you, when you're about 16, 17 years old, you think, oh, the bands are really old. And it's only now that you realise they're only a couple of years older than, you know, in, they might have been in their mid-twenties, but they seem old when you're 16. I, I, I didn't know. <laughs> we had a lot of that. And, it, and actually, it, it was funny because at that point, we had a lot of bias because we started our management. Um, we had, they suggested we 
make a real show of what we did. You know, we had fireworks, pyrotechnics, all sorts of stuff we used to do. We had sound effects coming in on a, a reel-to-reel tape recorder, light show, all the business. And we got really criticised in the early days because I think we, they weren't accepting us because we were so young. So they used to say, oh, well, you know, um, they can't be that good because they have to use special effects. So, I mean, I'm, I'm winding the clock forward a little bit and it will be relevant to probably what else you say to me. But a few years later, we decided to drop all the fireworks and things like this. And then Sod's Law, I think they call it. A lot of the people used to, journalists used to write, oh, well, say, you know, they're not as good now they've dropped all the fireworks. <laughs> it's, it was like, you can't win. But uh, as I say, we really did our apprenticeship, you know, from learning to play in venues which weren't adequate to equip the band to playing in some big stages with some, some big names, you know, big well, festivals. Wiki, Wikipedia tells me you had a certain celebrity manager at the time. And if Wiki tells me, it must be true. So you must have been able to play wherever you want. Well, that was... You're, I think the celebrity manager you're talking about had had two twin brothers, didn't he? That's right. And uh, if if he wanted to play somewhere, he'd get his brothers round to uh, make sure well, he actually, did. Actually, no. I mean, the thing is, it's all got a bit mixed up in time because that association happened around 1976, uh, for a, very, a very short time. But that's another story. I'm actually thinking of writing a book because there were so many things that happened in such a small amount of time. And that really was frying pan in the fire because we'd already been involved with a management company. And uh, the management company was, to be frank, involved with the mafia in America. And I'd been out and, and I'd met the mafia out there, really. And then I came home. The manager that was managing us in the mid-70s was getting so involved with American-Italian family that um, he didn't have an awful lot of time for us. And the, the story is that um, the manager then decided to put us with John Arden, i.e. Sharon Osbourne's then, who was looking after Jet Records. Well, my manager, whose name was Will Pine, used to work for Don Arden. And uh, Don Arden, as you know, had a reputation. I'm trying to keep this brief as possible. It's interesting, John. But, but the thing about this particular liaison with Charlie Cray, I was, um, if you like, the band's representative. So I went down to Jet Records, Don Arden's big mansion, in Wimbledon and Arthur Sharp who was the A&R man a lovely guy I went in here one day he said you never guess who we got coming here today I said no who he said Charlie Cray I said really I said what's he doing here then so he said well he's just been released from prison uh, he's written a book and he's trying to find somebody to um, publish his autobiography so I went oh okay so now, if you imagine I'm about I can't remember how old I would have been then about 23, 24 and I'm sitting in a mansion in Don Arden's office Don Arden has already got a reputation for being you know, a tough guy anyway. In fact, this was probably about the third or fourth time I'd been there to have a meeting with him, John Arden, that is. And all I could hear was this loud voice bellowing, shouting at people. <laughs> and in the end, he got so busy, I never got to see him on about three previous occasions. So the fourth time, I thought, oh, fourth time lucky, this time I'll get to see him. So I'm sitting in the um, little reception room, as it were, say little reception room, chandeliers and leather settees, in walks Charlie Cray. So I'm sitting there thinking, <clears throat> Charlie Cray, okay. So I'm saying, what do you say to someone who's who's got a reputation that precedes him? Hello, sir. Um, after a little while, we sort of there was this silence, and he said to me, "Hello, boy." I went, "All right." <laughs> so he said, "What do you do then?" I said, "I'll oh, play in a band." Oh yeah, I used to be in the music business, which he did. I mean, people don't realise it, but um, he was a, a music entrepreneur, really. He used to agency people at like Judy Garland and uh, actors like George Raft. And in fact, the story I'm, I've been told is that um, the uh, establishment at the time, you know, government, police, they all wanted to get the Cray twins inside. They felt that they really should get all the Crays off the street. Well, somebody, as they say, grasped them up because Charlie had a club. They were going to um, have this particular meeting in Charlie's club. So the police busted it and took Charlie away because he was an accessory because his premises were being used. You know, and that, That's how they got him inside. But he did about five years. The, the twins got life, you know. Going back to the story, uh, he said, how long have you been here? We've been sitting there for about 45 minutes, I suppose. He said, uh, how long have you been here? I said, oh, I must have been here 
only about an hour and a half now. It's a bit, not the first time. And he said to me, I remember, he said, you know, I don't like being given the run around. I've got people in the music business. I think we should have a meet. I went, oh, okay then. He said, um, now I live in West London, or did in at the time, and I had my little car outside. And he said to me, you got a car? I said, yeah. He said, you couldn't give us a lift, lift around my mum's, could you? So I said, yeah, okay. Where are we going? He said, Bethnal Green. Is it on your way? I said, yeah. Of course. Of course. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say no, aren't I? And I'm thinking, I'm driving down the road in my in my Mini, and I think if nobody is ever going to believe that I've got Charlie Cray sitting in front of my car. So we we had a meeting with him and a guy called Laurie O'Leary, who was involved with a lot of people in the music business, Steve Marriott, who I got to meet later. So a, a plan was put into place where Charlie Cray became our manager. I mean, it hit the Daily Mail, it went on television. It was a big thing. But you know what? We, as I say, frying pan in the fire. We'd already had a bit of a gangster as a manager, and now we were with Charlie Cray. And contrary to what you said at the beginning of this conversation, we could barely get a gig anywhere. Really? Agents were scared they were going to get their legs broken. (laughs) Of course. Now, tell um, me, who was the scariest out of the American Mafia, uh, Don Arden and Charlie Cray, or the Cray family? Who was the scariest? uh, Who was the scariest? Um, Probably Don Arden in a funny little way. I I, I would have thought, yeah, definitely the Don Arden or the Crays would have been, you know, the Mafia. Let's play a track from your early days. What's it going to be and why? Out of all the tracks I've chosen is Time Machine. I think it really, for, for me, I look back on it and it sums up kind of what we were up to at the time. It, it's kind of a little bit psychedelic. It's a bit rocky, but I'm, I've always been proud of the fact that we always sounded different to all the other bands at the time. Just for me personally, I think it, it's a little bit sums up what Stray was all about at that particular time. And also, even to this day, um, I've been playing the song in the Stray set fairly recently and it's still a popular song, you know, 50, 50 years on and I can't believe that I'm sitting here talking to you mm-hmm. about an album that came out 50 years ago um, in April 1970. Well, let's listen to Time Machine then.
so let's move on to what you're doing now. The industry's really changed from record deals to MP3s and making most of your earnings from merchandise and touring. How's that affected you? And tell me about what you're doing now, your current band, events that you were playing before lockdown, and what you've got planned for our rebirth. Okay, loads of questions all in one hit, Rob. Thank you. Right at this moment in time, as I'm like everybody else, we're kind of, you can't even really make plans. I mean, it's the first time in my life where I can't even sort of plan about what's going to happen tomorrow you know I, I speak fairly well almost daily to my tour manager who's kind of my manager now Paul Newcomb the monstrous child and um, we can't even fix a date on shows specifically because even venues don't know what they're going to do really you are in limbo land with it uh, a lot of shows we had have been rescheduled for 2021 mm-hmm. and uh, we still at the moment have some shows from October November December um, whether they're going to come off or not we don't know about that and the other thing that I was talking about the other day to somebody was that even if the shows come off are people going to be feeling comfortable going to a venue answering also part of your question I mean in recent times it's ironic that there's been we found there's been a bit of a resurgence possibly not only in my band Stray but in other bands of that era too you know people are coming out again I guess there's an age thing where people have got some money in their pocket now and they can go out and see bands play and also we picked up a lot of younger bands as well you know I'll get people come along so oh, we are one guy one of the last gigs I did recently he had all of the albums all the stray albums on vinyl and he said to me can you sign all these please he knew all the songs he said this is my inheritance they belong to my dad but I'm going to get these now for example we played a few shows which were surprised to us and to the promoters sold out I've blown my own trumpet I mean we actually sold out the stables in Milton Keynes which yeah. is quite something to do and we did in Milton Keynes as well because we did the Crawford Arms and that was jam packed now talking about if people want to come along and see you play if say for example you was at the Crawford Arms and you were shoulder to shoulder with somebody and we get offered a show there next year are people going to be thinking oh I want to go and see Stray there oh hang on I don't know that was packed out last time and it mm. might have the total reverse effect you know people might we put off going. Yeah, it's very difficult. Jason from the Crawford put on Facebook the other day about uh, if they use social distancing, how many people he can get yeah. into his pub and his venue, and yeah. it, it's really worrying. Well, I don't know. I don't know if, if Jason's got the same problem, but the other thing I've I've heard from some people that some of the venues they're not allowed to use the toilet facilities. Exactly, and if you do, you have to clean them down after everybody's been in there. I was about to say, and up until uh, we stopped playing, I mean, we our our tour we were doing was cut short. Uh, in March, just as the uh, social distancing thing came in. And prior to that, even though we were selling out at a few venues, it was still very difficult to actually make it pay on gig fees alone. You know, I'm I'm right... Probably you're going to ask me about this as well. It was a new lineup last year. I've gone from like a four piece to a five piece. All right. So we've got like a five five piece lineup. We had uh, two, sometimes three roadies, road crew, my, my tour manager as well doing the merchandise which is important uh, and then you've got like the cost of hotels fuel for the bus mm. um, all the other stuff that goes with it so we were we were having to you know an important part of it is the merchandise because we're making nothing really on downloads and like this the, the, mm. the percentage royalty rate is pathetic but like you say if if someone, like, as you say, Jason, is saying that he's got to have social distancing and you're cutting the people down, then bands like mine aren't even going to make any money to cover the costs on the merchandising. It is worrying how things are going to change. I'll tell you what, Del, let's, yeah. let's have another track. Let's play a track off your latest album, um, Your Choice Again. What one should we play? One that hasn't been played an awful lot and we were playing it in my solo set is Genevieve.
other projects outside Stray for example the Blues Devils and yeah. your solo stuff tell me a bit about uh, your other projects the, the solo project really started almost by accident and I've got to take you back to about 2004 the lineup I had at the time was a three-piece lineup and um, we had just finished in 2003 doing a, a big European tour with Iron Maiden the two guys in the band for whatever reason decided that for personal reasons, they couldn't really continue gigging in the same manner as we had been doing. So it kind of left me 
momentarily without a band. And I can't remember it. Somebody suggested to me, well, why don't you do something solo, like a blues thing? Because at the time, early 2000-ish, a lot of the blues music was becoming popular again. And um, I used to listen to, I was never, I never called myself, I was never really a blues artist anyway, but it just reminded me of some of the songs I used to hear back in the day. Big Bill Brunsey was a, an EP I remember my mum and dad, or it might have been my, my brother had that was in the house. So that was a kind of a, a little template and Robert Johnson tunes like that. But then I thought to myself, well, I, I'm a writer. I consider myself a writer first and more than a, a singer or a guitarist, really. So I thought, well, if I do it, I'm going to do my take on it. So I included a couple of other tunes. Careless Love was one of them, a Big Bull Brunsey tune. But I actually wrote a lot of songs of my own, but in the style of. When it got out there, it, was, it became quite popular. And Paul Newcomb, who is, as I say, he's, he's my sort of manager now, he said to me way back then, uh, why didn't you go and do some shows? So I did some show, solo shows, which I'd never done before, just me and an acoustic guitar. And that was quite a learning curve after all those years. Enjoyable. And then um, I got a call from uh, the people who were running the Colne Rock and Blues Festival. And um, the guy there, the booker, said to me, oh, he said, uh, we'd like you to come with your band and uh, and do the festival for us. And I said, what band? Uh, he said, well, well, to him, and I said, well, you, it's the band you better form quick. So he said, what, what, what's your band called? And I said, well, I don't know. I haven't got a name. I was just going out solo. He said, uh, well, you've got to let these people know if it's blues. So he said, what's your album called? I said, well, it's the Devil's Highway. He said, oh, it's blues. Del Bromham's Blues Devils. Call it that. I went, Okay, then, sort of completely by accident, it stuck. From that point on, I've really been doing solo acoustic shows and some with a band. Sometimes it's a three-piece band, sometimes it's a four-piece band. Then I did some stuff with um, Leslie West from Mountain. Um, I'd already done a couple of tours with Mountain, but Leslie was doing uh, a solo album as well, a solo blues, blues to Die For tour was called. That was funny because Paul, my manager, he was representing Leslie, I said to Leslie, hey, uh, come, come over to the UK, we've got some tour dates for you. Okay, great, I'm going to bring my band, I'm going to have so-and-so. He said, no, 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 just come with an acoustic guitar. He said, what? He said, come with an acoustic guitar and just tell your stories. He said, I don't do that. Well, you should try it. Del Bromham does it. So he said, well, okay, if Del does it, I'll do it, if he does it with me. So I ended up doing these shows with Leslie West. And the first shows were all England and Europe, and it was myself, Leslie West, Todd Wolf, who's a guitarist with Sheryl Crow. And during that that little uh, liaison, as it were, um, we had some time off, and I helped write a song with Leslie. Because I know you want to know about other liaisons with other people. I wrote a song with Leslie called To The Moon, and um, that was featured on his Unusual Suspects album, which did really well. And I was in good company on that one because it was, you know, you, you, you said to me to be unashamedly name drop, but when I, and I sure do on this particular point in time because I was in good company on that album. You know, I was in there. I mean, Leslie had Joe Bonamassa, Slash, Zach Wild, Steve Lukather, uh, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, and me. Mm, nice one. <laughs> so that was good. And what really, what I was really chuffed about was because when it went out in America, and I think it's because I'm proudly British. Good. The song that I contributed to the moon sounds sounded different to the rest of them. And a couple of people said, oh, yeah, it sounds a bit like as if someone like Jack Bruce has co-written it with him, which was also quite coincidental because Leslie always wanted to be the with Mountain, the American version of Cream. Yeah. Yeah. So going, going forward, I, I did the solo stuff. And then a couple of years ago, a record label, Universal, I think it was, bought out all the rights of the Stray stuff and they got re-released. So I thought, okay, well, they said, oh, we've got some shows of Stray. So I said, okay, well, the original lineup weren't around to do it. So I put a new Stray together. And um, that was really interesting because I remember the first time we played at the Borderline in London, I'd spoken to a few agents and things and, and the general consensus of opinion was oh well you know you're probably past your sell by date you're not going to get many people in there i contacted me personally i contacted the promoters myself we sold it out and three years on the trot it sold out it was a shame because the borderline actually had to close down last yeah. august and it's almost become a show around like a month before christmas and this year we did it at with the new lineup uh at the uh, the hundred club oh fantastic what's your favorite track to play live okay my favorite track to play live i think because I'm a huge fan of Mr. Steve Winwood, first graced the stage with straight supported traffic 
not far from here at the California Ballroom in Dunstable. I remember it. About 1968, just before he left to join Blind Faith. And I was just mesmerised by Mr. Winwood. Mr. Fantasy was a song that Stray actually played back in the, when we was about 17, 18, probably not very well. But I decided to revisit it on my solo thing, played it, and then we played a couple of shows at Esquires in Bedford, who was the engineer. He recorded it, and when we heard what he'd recorded, and different people had actually said, oh, have you got any live recordings of it, of the set? So we recorded it, put a CD out, and it sold very well. So what you're going to play now is a track by originally by Traffic called Dear Mr. Fantasy, one of my favourites.
wind up the chat now. You mentioned earlier that you'd like to do a book. That would be so, so interesting. Tell me a bit more about that. Funny, I started writing a few ideas because different people over the years have said to me about writing a book. And I and to be you know perfectly blunt, I'm no big superstar. And I thought, well, who's going to be interested? But I go to gigs and it's surprising. You know, there's a silent audience out there that you don't realise. You know, I, I played, did like the Butlins festivals and things like this. And we've had like queues half a mile long wanting to come along and shake your hand and sign this and all that sort of thing and they ask me the same thing as you do what actually sort of has convinced me I perhaps should do it is that Annie my partner she said to me she said you never told me that before you know we've been together for about 15 years or more and she said you never I didn't know that and she said well if you don't write it for anybody else I've got two grandsons she said, write it for your grandchildren so they'll know what granddad did if it was like market, anything like if it was marketed right, it might be interesting. But somebody else who's a publisher recently said to me, "Have you written a book? Would you like to write one?" And maybe it might be it might be true. Some of it would have to be seriously censored. I guarantee that. Get a ghostwriter. That's a track of one of my. There you go. It's almost telling on, on you to Hall- do it. On the album Valhalla, there's a song in there called Ghostwriter. It's too. almost telling you to do it, Dale. Well. <laughs> Thank you so much for having a chat today and uh, all the best with whatever coming out of lockdown throws at us. And I'm sure that you'll carry on pleasing people. Thank you very much, Del. Well, I'll find a way, Rob. And thanks for, thanks for the chat. It's really much appreciated. Thank well, you. With the band I was most looking forward to, Sunday Night's Headliners, System of a Down. I've been lucky enough to see them quite a few times and the power of this next song just blows you away. So... Feel free to get in touch with me, rob at robsemail.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Hope to talk to you all next week. Love you. Bye. (laughs)